Hey everyone, uh, Lonnie here, quick message. Um, you may have noticed that we have sort of been shifting from every week to every two weeks. That's just temporary for like the next couple of months while we uh, are both working on different things. Lisa has a book coming out. I am moving cross country, so we're both really super busy right now, but we will be out every two weeks uh, with a new episode of Endless. And uh, here is today's, hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and ambassador of chaos, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and vassal of the shifting triumvirate, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of Mists, Chapter 3. Issue 24 from the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mist Chapter 3 was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Callie Jones and P. Craig Russell, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre. Cover by Dave McKean. Brothers, sisters, others, all of us. At this moment, in this our trough of despair, it may seem like the greatest setback we have ever experienced, but it is the greatest opportunity. Time to wake up. Season of Mist, Chapter 3, begins in Asgard, home of the Norse gods. Odin the Allfather goes to the cavern beneath the world, where Loki suffers unspeakable torment, and makes the trickster god an offer he can't refuse. Join him and Thor on a diplomatic mission to the Dreaming to make their case for why hell should be theirs. But Odin is not alone. In other realms, other diplomatic teams are being assembled. The Lords of Order in Chaos, assorted gods from competing pantheons, and a passel of scheming demons are also throwing their hats in the ring. The demons have an advantage. The perennially mistreated Nada, whom we see curled up on her side either unconscious or beyond caring what happens to her next. The demons might have some competition, though. High above it all, two angels reside contemplatively in the silver city that stands apart from the order of created things. Their names are Duma, the angel of silence, and Remiel, who is set over those who rise. As we watch, they abandon the city to fly or fall toward the world. As contestants for the coveted key to hell assemble, a weary Sandman returns to the dreaming. Lucien the Librarian, Cain and Matthew the Raven quiz him. Was there a fight, boss? Did you get the woman you were looking for? Did Lucifer give you any trouble? Dream says no to all three, but clearly the last answer should have been a resounding yes. Dream meditates, or perhaps just frets, while sitting cross-legged before deciding to call on his big sister Death for some sage advice. Once you berated me for not calling on you when I had a problem, says Dream. Natalie dressed as he holds Death's sigil. Death seems a bit frazzled, as one would, if one had to chase after all the former inhabitants of hell on one's own. Her advice? Figure it out, and fast. Dream goes off to have a long, brooding think, which worries Matthew the Raven. Eve, who lives in a cave and cycles between maiden, mother, and crone with the speed of a hot flash, reassures the anxious Raven that Dream's black mood will pass. Finally, the hippogriff alerts Dream that a great many visitors have massed at the gate. There are now too many to keep out, unless Morpheus grants his gatekeepers extra power. Resigned, the Dreamlord puts on a nice robe and welcomes Lord Kilderkin, a manifestation of order incarnated as a cardboard box. Shivering Jemmy of the Shallow Brigade, Susano Onomikoto, Anubis, Bast, and Bess, Azazel, Chorenzen, and the Merkin, Odin, Loki and Thor, and last but not least, the angels, who are there to observe. Dream welcomes them in, tells them sweets are being prepared, and invites them to a banquet. Tomorrow, he promises, they will stop beating around the bush and talk talkless about real estate. All right, Elisa, I have to tell you, I am not the kind of girl who ordinarily claims band names, but Scheme and Demons, I think I'm going to I'm going to grab that and do something <laughs> with that. Um, anyway, here we are. Uh, Season of Mist, Chapter three, um, in which Lucifer's parting gift attracts unwanted attention and the Dream Lord receives unwelcome visitors. Uh, how do you feel about this issue? 
Well, first of all, as I was reading my summary, I saw that under hippogriff, I'd written question mark, check. And then I realized I'd forgotten because one's a wyvern and one's a hippogriff. And honestly, I want to be known. I want people to think of me as the kind of person who knows her wyvern from her hippogriff without checking. But Mm -hmm. the truth is, I I do get confused. Uh, So people. That's okay. Here at Chipperish Media, we we we're like real big proponents of the done is better than perfect thing. So like, we're always letting our our slip show in one way or another. So that's totally fine. So there won't be any wyvern shaming. I, I don't think so. I can't. I cannot say for the internet, but in my house, there will not be wyvern shaming. Well, that is good. Okay, so when it comes to the question of uh, unsuitable or unreliable memory, rather, I'm pretty. <laughs> I'm certain I worked on this issue, and mm-hmm. now that I know that I, I was all ready to make this big, like ta-da! Here's where I started working on this. Yeah. And instead, I was like, wait a minute, I think I started working on the previous issue because, you know, I, I was hired and I was working on issues that were already in progress. So I right. didn't get my name in the credits until, you know, I was way at the beginning. And also when I stopped, mm-hmm. I think, just asking people, what do I do now? Um, and actually <laughs> knew what I was doing uh, somewhat. So I mm-hmm. but I do have all these memories of mm-hmm. this uh, issue and so at times I'm looking at the artwork now and having these weird shivers of, I remember the boards. I remember that day. I remember my mom jeans back when we just called them jeans. Jeans. And yeah. um, so that's been sort of exciting. I mm-hmm. also, I love me upstairs, downstairs, Downton mm-hmm. Abbey. I've even started watching Gilded Age, which has some problems. But but anyway, I love it when we get to see what servants are doing as well as what the aristocrats are doing. And so mm-hmm. setting up for a big-ass banquet where we're also paying attention to the guest scheming, you know, that kind of Gosford Park uh, energy, mm-hmm. it is it is something I, I really enjoy. It is really fun. I actually always enjoy whenever Lucien shows up. There's something about Lucien that um, he's so gentle and he's so calm. Uh, but also, like, he, you know, he, he gets nervous, like things are things have been shaken up around him, you know, and he just wants to tend to his books. And there's something about that that I really like. Um, I love that you worked on this, that you have those memories, like, you know, we've been talking about this stuff up until now and getting to this point where you've actually worked on uh, the issues. It's going to add like a new layer to what we do here at Endless. And um, I'm very excited to kind of see that perspective through your eyes. But yeah, I imagine you'd have to go, you'd have to train on a couple of uh, of issues first before you actually got your name on the masthead. So that's pretty cool. Um, for me with this issue, I would say like every week I've been like, it's my favorite issue. It's my favorite issues. This one is not my favorite. Um, but I do like it. I think it is very interesting how nature abhors a power vacuum, how the very second that hell shuts down and that key is handed over, everybody's vying for it, you know, and we have all of these different, you know, characters from different types of mythology and everything is contained within one world, you know, um, the world of, of, of endless and the dreaming and, and, you know, Sandman. Um, but it's so interesting to see it kind of borrow from all of these, uh, this, all of this different like mythological DNA. Really fun to see it all sort of come together. So there, there's a lot of fun to be had in this issue. Um, but let's go ahead and start as we like to do uh, with the cover. I think the cover is so interesting. Uh, this again, Dave McKeon. The cover depicts a snake curled around a naked man, you know, presumably Loki, and the snake is poised to strike at his throat. Uh, the colors are green and yellow, and, and they are kind of represented like the colors of sickness and sun. You know, the snake's trunk that is coiled around the man from the waist down is this bright glowing yellow, um, like the source of light in the image, and the rest of the image is in shadow. Um, and the cover is more traditional, I think, and literal-minded than most of McKean's covers. Most of McKean's covers, we sit there, we go, well, here's this thing. I don't know what that <laughs> means. What does a butterfly have to do with anything? I don't know what the dragonfly is about, you know. Um, but it's funny how he manages to imbue this strange sense of hope 
hope into an image that on its surface seems truly hopeless uh, because the bottom part of the snake has this light like sun. You know, it feels like it's glowing. It feels like it's illuminating, like there's something um, positive and terrifying happening at the same time, which I find really kind of an interesting image. And it may just be the way that I see it, but I see it as having this kind of hopeful vibe to it. Did you see that? Oh, yes. Or is that just me? No, no, I saw that. <laughs> I also thought that the beautiful turquoise of what I guess is mm-hmm. this the cavern beneath the world. Yeah. It I have been kind of lust looking at, you know, vacations that I'm not going on. And I've been, you know, every time there's like an exercise video where it's mm-hmm. we're in Jamaica or some beautiful yeah. resort, I'm looking at that. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, it looks like the most aspirational twilight of the gods. <laughs> it's just beautiful. And there's some There's a lot of movement in the Mm -hmm. shapes that I really like. There's a way in which Loki's pointed face is pointing up and the snakes Mm -hmm. uh, looking down at him almost gleefully. There's a way that, you know, snakes can look kind of happy, like they're smiling when they're gaping their jaw to get you. And there's some way that they are (laughs) definitely locked in an embrace and an almost Mm -hmm. kiss here. So there's something Mm -hmm. that feels a little sexual slash romantic to me so you know it's Mm -hmm. like come vacation in the glorious twilight of the gods where you and your (laughs) snake can enjoy some special time together Well, I mean, and in the text, it states that the snake and the woman, Sijin, are both lovers for Loki so it it's I don't know, maybe I read the text wrong. We'll get to that. I wrote it down somewhere. But I just think that that is, is kind of an interesting thing. There's also this sort of a sense, like when I first glance at it before I actually look at it, it, it has a very waspish shape as well. So there's like the bottom part of the body that's sort of curved and pointed and yellow. And then there's the, the head that's kind of, and even though the wasp, it's the ass end that is dangerous. It's the <laughs> head of the wasp, the top of the torso of the wasp and the face are the things that look truly threatening, you know. Um, So it was interesting to me when I looked at it and I was like, oh, you know, at first I was like, it's a wasp. No, it's a snake. And it kind of has this Escher-esque two things at once sort of feel to it, which again is just like the genius that is Dave McKean. Like you just never, you you look at it and you think it's one thing and then you start looking into it and you see all that symbolism and you see what it means and what the colors are and the, the kind of sense that it evokes. And I'm always unsure. Whenever I look at one of Dave's covers, I'm always like, does it mean this? Does it mean that? Does it mean, but it's a really fun, you know, like 10, 15, 20 minutes of just thinking about that and kind of like diving in. Um, So it's always a good time to try to figure out what the hell is going on in his covers. So I also um, noticed something about the artwork. Well, first I noticed it when I was looking at the artwork, but I didn't really recognize it properly until you mentioned the credits. And I realized it's yeah. not Malcolm Jones the third inking here. It's P. Craig Russell. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because this is not a memory I have from working on the book. Because when I started working, I didn't know one inker from another. Um, mm-hmm. P. Craig Russell is an amazing, amazing artist in his own right. Penciler uh, as well as inker. And we're going to see if we if we get that far, we're going to see some of his amazing artwork. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm realizing how I can see how his style influences the artwork a bit. Mm-hmm. And so there's one... Um, Let's see. There, there's one particular when when we get to our favorite parts. I realized that one of the little images that I really loved has a very PK Russell influence uh, in mm-hmm. terms of just the the look of what he does. And um, so I I just I just wanted to have a little call out to to seeing how a different inker can mm-hmm. influence the line. You know, even when they're not trying yeah. to influence it, you do see that difference. It's you know, it's kind of like when you're making yourself up and it's like smoky eye or am I going to emphasize the lip? <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's all these different things that you can do with mm-hmm. what's underneath. Uh, in the script, there were some fun instructions to, uh, to Kelly that I thought mm-hmm. were worth noting. One was that Neil describes Odin as looking like spaghetti Western actor Lee Van Cleef 
who is the main antagonist in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly with Clint Eastwood. Oh, interesting. Uh, he was a classic bad guy. Um, and then when describing the uh, the palace, uh, Neil said, forget Kirby, you know, as in the mm-hmm. the amazing artist. Jack Kirby, Jack the Kirby, artist for, yes. You know, who who did Thor, the, the series, and, mm-hmm. and that was sort of my first Thor that I knew of. Um, this is ninth century Norwe. This is a ninth century Norwegian's idea of what a palace is, and uh-huh. I just want to say that that gave me little. Um, what do you call it? Preja view when you have a, <laughs> you know, because I I went on to work on the Norse book of mythology yes. with Neil, where mm-hmm. you know I I spent a lot of time thinking and learning about what you know what medieval um, Norse stuff mm-hmm. would look like and uh anyway so this is it was a very different odin and and uh and palace then um there's a weird image in the door behind dream mm-hmm. and i noticed it it was just if you look at the image it kind of looks like this shadowy image with cool strange eyes but it's mm-hmm. half in and half out and i was a little puzzled as to what it was mm-hmm. so here's the script Behind him is an open door through which he's obviously just walked. You might want to put some kind of grotesque thingy peering discreetly around the door at him in astonishment. <laughs> so that's that was what that oh, was. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, and the last thing I just wanted to call out, I mean, I'll mention other things. Obviously, I think Kelly Jones is a wonderful artist. His, mm-hmm. you know, his repertoire of demons is endless. Um, mm-hmm. he's, well, not the endless, but just, you know, he's got, he, you, you, I, I remember Neil once saying, if you want, you know, a Cecil B. DeMille cast of demons and each one of them different, you get Kelly Jones. <laughs> um, cause he's, he's your guy. Um, mm-hmm. and then I just wanted to mention something for newer comic book readers about the language of comics. So when we have that flashback to Lucifer, we have a little more faded color. I think we also have some striations in the penciling. We have mm-hmm. that sense, um, that it's sort of pushed back. It is not as clear an image. And it's, it's an interesting thing because when you get a flashback, in film or in TV, you might have a moment in the older films of fade, but then the image is usually just as clear. And I always mm-hmm. think it's interesting because, you know, I don't have flashbacks that are as immediate as the thing that's going on in front of me right now. And it's mm-hmm. it's a way in which I think actually comics are a little closer to reality, although perhaps some people have perfectly crystal memories of everything. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. It almost looked like it was uh, like an old TV screen kind of rendering the memory, you know, through yes. those faded lines. It kind of has that feel too. And I thought that was very cool. And again, the creativity in the ways in which different artists can kind of imagine, you know, how certain certain things that feel a particular way to us would look. And the representation in the way something looks is not about what it is, but about how it feels. And I think that that's just an example of how well they do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my memory is that when I started work, I was working on Mm -hmm. Sandman, Shade the Changing Man, and The Books of Magic, uh, which was, it's a really fun miniseries. Neil Gaiman wrote it. Um, John Bolton and and other wonderful artists were involved, but Neil and John Bolton created the character of Timothy Hunter. Think. Mm -hmm was modeled a bit after John Bolton's son at the time. So he's this, oh. you know, nerdy, sweet, smart uh, kid wearing glasses and playing with a yo-yo and w- discovering that he has the potential to become the greatest magician in the world. Yes, mm-hmm. maybe you're thinking it reminds you of another spectacled <laughs> English boy wizard, but this one came first. This one did come first. So anyway, it's possible that Neil might be owed some royalties. You know, I do. (laughs) I really do think people come to these things, um, you know, independently. Also, if I showed you pictures of me at age nine, I look exactly like both Timothy Hunter and Harry Potter. (laughs) So (laughs) I was everyone always called me sir. Um, So... (laughs) So anyway, he um, he wanted to he he sort of slagged off the lords of order and chaos, and then he decided he wanted to play with the themes, and so now he gave this very um, specific details about how everything was going to be laid out and how he was going to 
play with them. So I love that there was this whole specific way he wanted to play with them. And mm -hmm. order is a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, order and chaos are so interesting the way that they, um, they're like kind of referenced thematically here. You know, um, we have this, he gave you hell, the most desirable plot of psychic real estate in the order of created things. Um, and then we rent, we go to the silver city. It is not paradise. It is not heaven. It is a silver city that is not part of the order of created things. So we've referenced that twice that created things have order. And I guess what they're created from is complete chaos. I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's really neat. It's a very specific phrase. And, you know, and I'm left thinking, okay, what does this mean? This is like really digging into the the themes that we have here about order and chaos. Um, and so I think it's just, it's really interesting. And it gives me a lot of questions, a lot of wonderings about, about what that all needs. It sounds like it's got to be an important detail. Well, I think that it may also be... Um, borrowing or or inspired a bit by uh, Hebrew biblical, mm -hmm. uh, the beginning of of uh, Genesis, and I think mm -hmm. that Babylonian myths have some similarity, if I'm not mistaken. So in in the beginning of uh, the the book of Je I always hesitate saying the book of Genesis. I did learn it as Brashit. I was a Hebrew schoolgirl, um, uh. so I'm like doing this little translation in my head. Uh, so there's this idea that everything was tohu vibohu, like which is another word mm -hmm. for chaos, but it has a slightly different connotation. It, it, it sort of swirly, everything all mushed together mm -hmm. and everything's watery and undifferentiated. And so the first thing that God does is he makes, I think the English is the firmament, the rakia, mm -hmm. out, of, out of all this confusion. And so that creation mm -hmm. comes from ordering out of chaos. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, the theological question comes. So where is God and all, where are all the angels while this is going on? Are they in the soup of everything together? Mm -hmm. So presumably there is a place that is apart from both the chaos and the order that's created out of it. And I think mm -hmm. that's what Neil is, is delving into. It's, I mean, I know as a kid learning this stuff, I struggled to have an image in my head of, mm -hmm. you know, we were told to just sort of accept it as the mystery, but where is God and how is this all working? Yeah. And so creating this comic image is, is a challenge. But anyway, I don't mean to get too theological here, but I, I was wondering if this was partially a nod to that. Oh, I love it. I always get theological and mythological and all of that stuff. I've actually gotten really into because of this, because of this um, comic, I have recently gotten completely obsessed with uh, with mythologies, like all of them. You know, uh, I got Norse mythology, the book that you worked on with Neil. So I'm excited about that. I'm reading Mythos um, with Stephen Fry, who mentions Morpheus from Sandman in Mythos, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, there's just so many like fast fascinating things. And, and the beginning, it's always in the beginning was chaos. And then there was order, you know, from that order of created things. So I think that it's really interesting that we have this hell as part of the order of created things. And the silver city is outside of that. And then like, when anything is outside of the order of created things, it's like, well, what does that, what does that mean to be outside of it? It's, it's unimaginable. It's beyond what we can think of, because we are part of the order of created things, I guess. I don't know. I'm just, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I'm very much enjoying going in uh, deep into mythology, which also has, uh, has some uh, relevance to something that I'm working on as well. So I'm very excited about that. Ooh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, at this point, I think we should also mention demon politics. <laughs> And oh, yes, the Merkin. I love that the she's Merkin. the Merkin. It's not even like <laughs> it's Ms. Merkin, although Ms. Merkin <laughs> would be a cool name. Ms. Uh, Merkin is a great name. Yes. Oh, you know, she's there with Ms. Marvel, Ms. Merkin. I know what her there costume would be. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in just a second. Let's talk about all of these demons and what they're up to. All right. So first of all, I love that. Um, wait, is it? Azazel there, or is it Chorenzen who's talking? I know. I think Azazel is talking, and Chorenzen is just kind of with him. Okay, that's okay. So I love that Azazel is talking here, kind of like a demagogue. It's even mentioned mm -hmm. in the script. This is like a demagogue, mm -hmm. although kind of a demon gog. Um, <laughs> and 
And I just, that was one of the things I really enjoyed is you get all of this, you know, you have been downtrodden, but you know, this is our moment and we're going to rise. And everyone's like, yeah, it kind of felt like it's a St. Crispin's Day speech, right? There you go. He's getting them all riled up. It's getting Braveheart. Getting them riled up. They're, they just need their little, <laughs> their little demon caps. Mm-hmm. Um, so Merkin, okay, so I have to just give give a moment for the Merkin. She <laughs> was another, uh, her, her design was originally inspired by the Whitkin book that I, I mentioned mm-hmm. in our last podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was a book of sort of surreal, erotic uh, photographs and the image was called Amour and it was uh, a woman with an animal skull on her head with glass eyes in it the skull uh, it was either it was con- it, it wasn't clear I guess to Neil what what the animal was might have mm-hmm. been a dog skull but it was placed with the teeth on top and the glass eyes in the wrong hole so it looked bizarre and disturbing Mm-hmm. Originally, she was supposed to be sexy and wearing an evening dress. Um, and I thought, well, that would have made her a bit more like Mazakine, who's mm-hmm. half beautiful and half not. But Kelly yeah. just did her differently. And I just, I just love her. I just love that she's like, I'm sexy, I'm hot, I own myself, you know, yeah. and 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 she's not, shall we say, Certainly not conventionally attractive and certainly not for the 90s. Yeah. Um, And originally she was supposed to be wearing an expensive evening dress, shoulder length gloves, very sexy, expensive looking body with the nightmare head on top. Um, I I think I would have been interested in that as well. But I I love her just like, here I am, you know, deal Mm -hmm. with me and my my sexiness. Um, (laughs) But I think as we've mentioned this in an earlier podcast, but maybe people have started tuning in now and they don't know what a merkin is. What is a merkin? Well, you know, a a merkin is kind of a wig for, you know, particular area. I believe when I looked it up, it was called the female pudenda. Um, so take for that what you will. Um, and I, I was looking at Merkin because I thought that maybe Merkin, the name, maybe the 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 little wig, right, um, was actually taken from this demon in the mythology. Like, I don't know mythology. I'm learning now, but I don't know it. Um, so I, I looked it up, could not find it. And then I was like, oh, so maybe this demon is a reference to the Merkin. I did an etymology search, which uh, comes, this comes from etymonline.com. Uh, it says, according to the Oxford Companion to the Body, the custom of wearing merkins dates from the mid-15th century, was associated with prostitutes, and was to disguise a want of pubic hair, either shaved off to exterminate body lice or a result of venereal disease. So I find that, like, all of it is is fascinating. Like, you could do a, pardon me for saying this, deep dive, like, into the history of the merkin <laughs> as it is, right? Um, so I think that that's fascinating. I love that we have this, this feminine demon who is owning herself, right? You know, who is just naked, just hanging out, red skin, you know, like, she is absolutely owning herself and um and then we're just you know moving moving through that and there she is she is merkin she is just she is the um, she's the merkin the feminine expression of merkin yes you know what i'm saying like if you were expressing a concept in the way that dream is dream and death is death she is merkin she is merkin i'm gonna make a prediction right here so for Mm -hmm. a long time it's been the fashion uh to remove the mm-hmm. uh, fur below. And, yes. you know, and I think it's just like the whole eyebrow thing. Thin eyebrows were in in the 70s. And then people, you know, tried to grow them back in the 80s only to discover they'd overplucked. What are you going to do now? People are tattooing and getting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of uh, potions and lotions to make the eyebrows grow. I think the same's going to happen. You know, someone's going to look yeah. down there and say, my God, look at those pictures of you know, 70s beauties, they had a full luxurious Merkin. They lurking. Well, it wasn't a Merkin. It was the real, the real, yes. And the so real people, thing. people are going to turn to the Merkin again. I think it's going to be a yeah. thing. 
fashion is cyclical. Yes. You know, it'll be it's it's making a comeback and and this demon will absolutely be there when it does. Um, so, yes, I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, the whole idea of the Merkin made me laugh. Um, and it was and it's always fun to look those things up. Looking up etymology is one of my favorite pastimes. It is so much fun to find out where these words and concepts came from. I was a little bit disappointed to find out that there was not a demon already named Merkin and that that's where the Merkin name came from. But this is just as fun. Knowing that that Neil has created that demon, I think, is pretty awesome. I like it. Um, So another thing I really wanted to talk about with you had to do with, sadly, we used to have, didn't we have a Brutometer in the beginning of the podcast? (laughs) I think we did. I think we were going to have it. I don't know if we we started with it or we just talked about it at the beginning. But yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, we, we didn't have the Brutometer this I think Morpheus would score really high on the Brutometer because he yeah. broods so much in this issue that mm-hmm. you see this image of the, the castle and the dreaming and then suddenly it's like on top of some spiky, desolate <laughs> cliff mountain <laughs> protrusion, protuberance. And mm-hmm. um, and Eve, who is the, the Eve who lives in a, a cave. Before this, this is a little bit of, Josh, I always, Josh Unra? Josh Unra. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, the, you know, he would know this trivia. But Eve, I remembered Eve as a kid from Plop magazine where Sergio Aragones would draw mm-hmm. these adorable little Cain, Abel, and Eve. And she was this, you know, cronely <laughs> witch. But here Neil has her, you know, cycling between maiden mother and crone. Mm-hmm. And I love that she... uh you know, she just says, oh, that's, you know, that's what he always does when he's antisocial. Don't you worry, Matthew. But I had this, I've been watching um, the new Sex in the City, the Just Like That. And, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of the discussion talks about, you know, is Carrie a bad friend? Does she really take her friend's needs sufficiently mm-hmm. into account? Oh, I was kind of thinking that you might think that Dream is not such a good friend slash brother here because mm-hmm. if if you... Okay, if you were Dream and you knew that the dead had all been like let out of hell and you were like, hmm, my sister told me that I should tell her when I have a problem, but it never occurs to him that she might have her hands full. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's Dream is kind of very um, solipsistic. The whole world is his world. It's what's going on with him. And he doesn't generally tend to see things from the perspectives of others. He does not. So I think this is an area where I don't think this is a mistake. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is, oh, you know, Neil forgot. And I think this is yep. a deliberate moment where even though he has grown, from the place he started, he's mm-hmm. still got some, you know, some learning to do, some growth to to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And back to Eve, uh, Neil described her as being in her 70s and, and then age 35 and then age 20. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about that in the 90s, you know, actresses really tended to disappear between the ages of 40 and 70 or maybe you'd have them playing 70 but you know you had when they're 38 they're they're playing a 70 year old yeah you Mm -hmm. you know you basically had ingenues active Uh moms with young kids and grandmothers Mm -hmm. and that's that was it that was it you had Mm -hmm. the one exception that i can think of was maud who was in her 40s and that was a a b arthur sitcom in the 70s yeah which in the 70s was a big deal you know, that wasn't done back then. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it's even, even now it's not as common and we've got so many yeah. more um, avenues for, for watching things. And then uh, she was, of course, in the Golden Girls. So mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I, I love the fact that Neil did create this character. You know, he he's giving room for characters who are female and not just ingenues or moms. You know, she's sort of cycling back right. and forth. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I, I love it. And for the same reason that, you know, I, I, I like seeing representation of different ages as well as 
you know, all kinds of diversity. Yes. Typically women who have the temerity to outlive their youth are just shoved behind, you know, dark curtains and left to just rot, you know, and uh, as far as, as, as entertainment is usually concerned. So it is kind of fun to see characters who are, who are in that age. And I feel like this is a natural moment for us to talk for just a second about another comic that I read the first issue of recently, which is Guilt, G-I-L-T, by Elisa Quitney, funny enough, um, which is coming out April 6th um, from Ahoy Comics. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, about the characters that you have in there, because it's so wonderful. We open with Hildy, who is in her 70s and is just full of piss and vinegar. I absolutely love this character. So tell me a little bit about this comic that you have coming out on the 6th. Oh, gosh. Oh, well, so Hildy was... I'm sorry, 6th of April. This is going up in February. I mean, the 6th of April, so that people don't get too excited about it being out in March. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes. Well, yeah, I... um, Hildy was very much inspired partially by B. Arthur, who is the, Mm -hmm. you know, wisecracking Dorothy of the Golden Girls and Maud. Yeah. And also by my mom, um, who was Mm -hmm. just a very unusual mother. She wrote about, you know, uh, human sexuality in the 70s. She was funny and irreverent. She smoked cigarettes. She wrote for Cosmo magazine. So there were always free Cosmo magazines and Ms. magazines (laughs) lying around. But she found some of the girly, you know, come hitherness of Cosmo annoying. Mm-hmm. And so Hildy is a character who's like my mom, uh, living in an apartment on the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. But she's living in this uh, building, which is based on a real building, the Level Club, uh, mm-hmm. which is which which was built by Theosophists according mm-hmm. to the blueprint of uh, King Solomon's Temple. And anyway, oh my, in my god! So th- this really exists on the Upper West Side. I I don't mean to digress too much. But anyway, so Hildy and her building has special rules. She's a member of the Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists. And when she goes out the back door in in New York City, the old apartments have like a fire door that leads to a back (laughs) stairs. When she goes out that door, she is transported into 40 years into the past and into the body and, and, you know, self that she was then. So she's wanting to go back and change something in her past. She she does mm-hmm. not want to marry the guy she married. She wants to stay with her female friends. But time travel has its rules, and she's been having a lot of trouble doing this. And now it's getting more and more complicated as some of the problems of her aging are getting in the way. Mm-hmm. And um, and she has this uh, home health care aide, Trista, who is assigned to her um she, she didn't want this woman. She didn't expect it. A, another relative has sent this woman to help. Mm-hmm. And um, and Trista, I would say, is the Bill Murray of home health care aides. She's cynical. <laughs> she's jaded. She just wants to do just enough and no more. But one thing leads to another, and they end up uh, breaking the rules and going back in time together, only to mm-hmm. discover that their pasts were actually linked and they're going to have to Ooh, figure yeah. some shit out uh, before they 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 before they actually mess up the future. So. Oh, my God. I love it so much. It was so fun to read. And, uh, you know, for everybody out there, I just want you to know none of this was in the script. I just saw that we were talking about women, like especially older women having some representation in comics. And I thought, you know, yeah, this is this is something that um, uh, that just made me immediately think of that comic because I just read the first issue, which was wonderful. And I'm very excited. So everybody that is coming out April 6th. Uh, call your comic book stores today and place an order. Um, so one of the things that we're doing um, in this issue is going in a completely different direction. Like last week, the story was loaded for bear with Lucifer and he just removed himself from the fight. Everything we thought was going to happen didn't happen. And now we've got all these different factions vying for power and suddenly it's Game of Thrones. You win or you die. You know, like I totally dig it. Um, and it's fun to see all these different mythologies come into the same world together. We've got demons and Lucifer and Dream and, and Loki, Odin, Cain, Abel, Eve. Of course, 
Merkin, which is not part of any mythology, but I will just headcanon that she is because I, I kind of <laughs> love it. Um, so it's really fun to be going um, in this completely different direction um, with all of these things, because when, you, you know, when I read a story, you know, I'm always like two steps ahead. I'm like, what's coming next? What am I anticipating? And the thing I think most readers do that. And the thing that's really nice is that if as writers, we know what a reader is anticipating, we can play with that anticipation and kind of, you know, twist things up and, and put some surprises in. Um, but here I was all, you know, loaded up for this fight with Lucifer. We take this, you know, left turn. Now we're in this completely different place. And it's so interesting and fun to kind of see that play out. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit um, is we, we get a little bit of nada when we're dealing with these demons. Um, and so we have the demons who have a special card up their collective sleeves for those who, you know, have clothes. And, um, and this card is that they have nada all tied up and still in confinement, released from hell, picked up by these demons who know that they can use her, um, you know, as a trading chip for, you know, getting hell away from, from dream. All right, everybody. Um, Elisa and I ended up having this really long conversation about this whole thing and we got a little bit into the weeds. And so we kind of wanted to come back and sort of just have a straightforward discussion about what it is that we're trying to say here. Um, I had a problem with the way that Nada was represented in this issue. Black women in our culture are often depicted from the outside in looked at as objects to be acted upon rather than being seen as human beings and being uh, being represented from the inside out. And I work with a woman, um, her name is Dr. Cherise Laprie, and she defined media literacy for me in a way that has just completely crystallized a lot of the ways in which I approach this, which is that media literacy is about seeing the things that culturally we are actively discouraged from seeing. That is really interesting to me because I had always thought in the past about having sort of cultural blind spots, things mm -hmm. I didn't notice until, you know, someone maybe pointed it out to me. But I hadn't thought of it as culture, you know, actively like turning my head away and saying, don't look at that, Elisa. Oh, absolutely. I mean, culturally, it is very much like pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, but it's it's absolutely there. And I think that this ends up, we get into this like really terrible space where we're all like torches and pitchforks whenever we see anything, you know, that, um, that we understand. Now, culturally, we have started to see the man behind the curtain um, and the torches and pitchforks method of going after people for work that they did 20, 30 years ago is completely inappropriate. So much so. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me with the Summer Olympics with Simone Biles and, and sort mm -hmm. of this new conversation in the in the past, the conversation about athletes was you're a professional athlete, suck it up. If you can't deal with, you know, the stress, then you're not a professional athlete. And I think there was a similar uh, approach to writers. I used to get told again and again, you know, once you've had one or more books published, you should be able to take your criticism, you know, no sugar, straight out, you know, like cold yeah. turkey with, with, you know, just shove it down and, 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 and then go and do it and make it better. And I would end up feeling defective and, you know, have a lot of trouble getting back up to speed with the writing. Which makes it really hard to create. And the last thing in the world we want to do is silence our creators. That is a very, very bad space to be in. People, we cannot have a conversation if we are not willing to talk about the conversation, to talk about whatever it is, and make sure that we're just acknowledging what's there and that it's not a big condemnation that it's not, you know, a whole big thing. So, you know, without condemnation, without accusation, any of that bullshit, you know, this, the work was made at a certain time, but it exists in the here and now. And as a culture critic, I'm talking about it in the here and now. And I feel a responsibility so that people don't feel gaslit. So the people who do see these things, you know, who have gotten to the man behind the curtain, when I say there's a man behind the curtain, then we can all acknowledge it and nobody feels gaslit by it, which is basically just what I want to do. But without all of that condemnation that comes whenever we have these discussions. Totally. And I, I also want to acknowledge how the world was a bit different in the 90s, because mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up on the Upper West Side in the 70s, and I certainly knew interracial couples, but I grew up watching you know, the Love Boat and all the commercials on TV, and you just... 
Oh, wait, I think the Jeffersons. The Jeffersons was the only interracial couple that I yep. can remember on TV. And they were, you know, it and they was, were sidekick. Couple. They, well, yeah. but but it was, you know, I loved the love boat. Uh, the Love Boat was, you know, this series that was a cruise, which is now, by the way, very bad for the environment, speaking of things that we, you know, but anyway. <laughs> that but, we know now that we didn't know then, yes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and every episode, people would find love, including the crew members. And you, you know, it was unthinkable, unthinkable that you might have uh, a black person and a white person in a romantic pairing. So mm-hmm. I just, I do feel like... You know, in the 90s, I remember thinking it was really good and cool that Sandman didn't, um, you know, just just feel attracted to blonde muses and yes. uh, was was attracted to, you know, diverse love interests. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that said, I I think that I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how Neil and the writers in the writer's room, you know, approach not his character in this situation in the Netflix series. And we don't want to take like this huge chunk out of each podcast. So I think you had this amazing idea because, you know, you texted this to me that we needed a code word that was just like yeah. the, the shorthand, like when you're a couple and you're like, you know, you touch your nose and that means you have to leave the party because yes, whatever. Um, and, and I, I, was thinking about how, you know, okay, these are defects perhaps, but, you know, in a restaurant, there are a certain number of, uh, you know, mouse hairs and like insect heads that just fall into the food you cannot prevent them they they, they won't harm you and you just you you don't want to think about them but these are the acceptable level because if you didn't have them you would just starve to death there would be no food and so maybe right, that can but be. if somebody sees the mouse hair on their food yes and then you say i don't see any mouse hair that's gaslighting no so i mean the thing is is like we acknowledge that they're there we acknowledge that they're they're in it. Yes. Um, we say, yes, that absolutely is an insect head. But no, I'm not going to send this back because I'm not going to have this without this right now. At this time, we're, you know, we're still working on all of this stuff. We're still figuring it out. So right now we've got a certain amount of insects head, insect head. So I think that like when we get to these points where we're talking about this stuff, we can just be like, we got an insect head. Insect head. In the way that Nada is represented here. Yes. Here's the thing that's the problem. Nobody needs me flying in with my white ally cape floating behind me right i'm just saying this is what i see and acknowledge it and then move on um, so <laughs> let's go ahead and move forward um into uh the dead are coming back so oh my god we've been hearing this refrain for a couple of issues and i cannot wait to read the rest of it because here we have death and death is like yeah i'm here to answer your phone call brother but you know i have some things to do stuff is happening and the dead are coming back um i haven't read ahead because I want to remain unspoiled, but it is so hard because that is so exciting. Yeah, I there the episode, the episode, the issue that's coming up is um, a particular favorite of mine. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a little standalone, and um, that's all I'll say. Except that I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I am very, very excited about that. Um, also, here we are, and I have noticed once again, we are playing with teeth. Teeth, you know, are very dangerous imagery in Sandman. Um, we had it before in the Corinthian with eyes made of teeth, and now we see it in the limbo demons. Um, they are almost nothing but teeth, you know, and when we say something has teeth, That means that it can bite, that it's dangerous. Um, And I find teeth really interesting. It's like, uh, you know, when you think about things being dangerous, you think of weaponry, you think of armor, you think of, but teeth are are weapons that are part of our actual physical makeup. And so the idea of teeth being such a dangerous thing, and when we see them, we know that whatever owns those teeth means business. I kind of love that as a thematic shortcut for be afraid, be very afraid. I love the horror imagery of teeth. Um, so the first, the first short story that I did with the artist who's doing guilt with me, Alain Morissette, mm-hmm. um, was, no, this wasn't the first, this was the second, but it was, it was mm-hmm. a story about teeth. So, uh, in Ahoy Comics, there's this, uh, anthology series called Snifter of Terror, where they take a, po- you're supposed to take a Poe short story and make mm-hmm. it worse. 
-hmm. And so I uh, picked Berenice, which is a story about teeth that is really Uh pretty sexual and disturbing in its own right, Mm because Poe, you know, is your man for that. But I I took it uh, a step Merkinward. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I was having I was at San Diego Comic Con and I was with Mark Russell, who's a great mm-hmm. uh, comic writer in both senses of the word, incredibly funny. And I said, "Oh God, I really need to show a kind of you know vagina dentata thing happening, but obviously <laughs> I can't show it." And I I've got mm-hmm. this scene where she's riding a bicycle, and you know Mark Russell said something after you said it was so perfectly obvious. He said, well, you can show the result of it. And so, you know, she gets off the bicycle and the seat's all torn up. And um, anyway, I, the more I thought about teeth, the more I just, I, I kept saying, Alain, everything should look like teeth. The the four poster bed, like the canopy should look like teeth. And mm-hmm. um, anyway, I, I don't know why I'm going on about myself. This is not, but anyway, I love teeth. I love the horror of teeth. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, when you get an artist who can really go to town with, you know, having a lot of dark and having a lot of teeth, it's mm-hmm. it's horrible, but it's fun. It's kind of awesome. And, you know, and the idea that like, we all have it, right? I mean, pretty much most of us have teeth. Well, not my sort. father at the end, but right. that's... <laughs> I mean, if if we don't have actual the teeth that we were born, but our our basic bodies are meant to have teeth. So you, we are meant everybody to have possesses teeth. them. Everybody possesses them. Most people possess them, and they have this incredible, dangerous, you know, element to them. And so there's this sense that, like, yeah, this is scary and dangerous, but you've got this too. Like this is a power that everybody has, and when you when you think about it in that term, that like it, it feels to me like teeth are a representation for the darkness inside of all of us. Oh, oh yes, and my fa- like one of my favorite horror things is that those weird tumors, the teratoma tumors, that have mm-hmm. like an eye and a tooth. Um, yeah, that's scary. It is. It's it's just a really interesting choice. And I see that coming up again. I'm like, yeah, I see that. That's the darkness within us all, which I really, really like. Um, all right. So now we are going into my favorite part of every episode of Endless, which is Lucian's Library, where you give us the insights from behind the scenes. So what do you have for us this week? Well, so I think this is where I started. So I'll mention um, I came into the office and Karen Berger said to me, you know, I don't think I gave the whole story of how I started working yet. I can't even remember <laughs> if I did or not. But I'll go back. But anyway, mm-hmm. I I started working and Karen said, oh, too bad. Neil just left. He was just oh. in the offices, but, you know, too bad you didn't meet him. Mm-hmm. And then she said, actually, he had to leave some of his laundry here, his dirty laundry, because he was bringing back so many books. Could you box this up and send it to him? <laughs> And at this point, I, even though I'd read Sandman and I already loved it and I was already Mm -hmm. a fan, you know, I had my, my bachelor's from Wesleyan, my MFA (laughs) from Columbia. And I'm like, okay, it's my first day on the job and I'm boxing up someone's dirty laundry. So (laughs) what I wanted to do was I wanted to send him some of my dirty laundry, but I thought I will get fired (laughs) and it's my first day. So I said, Karen... Do you have any of those like peds in the drawer? So I don't know if anyone does this anymore, but it was a common thing that women would walk to work, just like in Working Girl, Mm -hmm. in sneakers for the bad Mm -hmm. weather. And then they'd switch into, uh, you know, proper heels or work shoes. And you would often have those little like foot stocking things, socks. Yes. So she Mm -hmm. did. And I said, Mm -hmm. oh, great. Can I have them? And she said, what are you going to do with them? I said, I'm, I'm going to put them in an envelope that says, do not open till Christmas and stick it in with Neil's laundry. And she said, okay. So that's what we did. Oh, Neil never mentioned it. I don't know if he noticed it, but it it just was my little, it was my little (laughs) bit of, um, I I wasn't so much protesting as I just wanted it known that I was was not just a laundry packager. That's right. (laughs) Um, 
So the other, I'll have to go backwards in, in the next Lucien's library. I think I'll talk about, because I, I haven't talked about how I got the job or any of that. You know, I? you and I have talked about it and I'm sitting here and I'm like, have did we talk about that privately or did we talk about it on the podcast? I don't know, but I'll bet anybody would love to hear that story again, even if we did already talk well, about it. Well, so. maybe people could write us and tell me if yeah, I've said it already. <laughs> God, I'm so old. It's embarrassing. Oh, um, stop. All right. So um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was plotting and pantsing. So Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know the terms, plotting is, you know, somebody, uh, a writer who plots everything out beforehand and has a full synopsis. And pantsing is, you know, the opposite when a writer just explores through the writing. Mm -hmm. I, I actually think that most people I know are not completely one or the other. And Mm -hmm. depending on the project, they'll go back and forth. I mean, I always have an outline and I never seem to follow it. And I often (laughs) rewrite my outlines. And I've had writers admit to me, you know, when I was an editor and I asked for, you know, a detailed synopsis, they said, you know, I'm going to have to write the whole thing and then write a synopsis and send that to you because I won't know Mm -hmm. until I do it. Mm-hmm. So here is uh, a perfect example that Neil was not planning completely and not plot pantsing completely. So there's a note in the script, bugger, I've just spent half a day trying to plan out this issue and I can't get it to fly. So I'll just start writing and see where it takes me. It's a bit like jumping out of a plane and hoping you'll find a parachute on the way down. And uh, so I love that he did have a plan Mm -hmm. and then he had to, you know, jettison it. And then on Mm -hmm. page 18, right after panel one, he wrote, you know, I've just discovered the antidote to my continual worries about this issue, which has not been easy to write. I've started worrying about the next one, which has thrown the whole thing into a different perspective. Sigh. (laughs) I love that so much. That is absolutely such a classic writer experience. And I love that in the middle of this script, Neil's just jotting off these notes about where he is emotionally with the state of the thing. It's just, it's wonderful. And and when you look at that and you look at somebody like Neil, whose writing is so incredible, what that can do for a writer who feels like they're always struggling and it always seems so easy from the outside. It's really, really not. Um, recently for, uh, I have a, a Substack newsletter called Dear Writer. Um, and anybody's now we're plugging everything because Elisa and I are terrible at plugging our own stuff. So I'm going to do that. Dearwriter.substack.com. You find it there. Um, I actually just recently did um, a, a, a newsletter about uh, George R. R. Martin talking about the plotter and pantser uh, spectrum mm-hmm. as architect and gardener. Um, you know, that the architect is somebody who has a plan, who has a blueprint, and knows exactly what they're going to do, knows exactly where the windows and the doors are going to go. And then a gardener is somebody who goes out, plants a seed, and just kind of like improvises to make it grow and figure out what it is, you know? Um, and I really like that. And you can't be both. You can be in the middle on that spectrum. I tend to be more toward the pantser end um, of the spectrum. Um, but but I've had a friend, I had a friend who would do everything, like spreadsheets were her thing. She had everything worked out in a spreadsheet. She would actually be able to follow it, you know, and not abandon it all the way through. I'm like, that's amazing to me. Like, I've never seen anything like it. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of that. And it is, it is really comforting because when you are the writer, you always feel like you're, you don't have it. And you look at somebody else who's as possible whose work is as good as Neil's and think, well, if he feels this way, then maybe I'm better than I think I am, you know? Absolutely. So speaking of architects, um, I know an architect and he just sent me a picture of a building and Mm -hmm. was sort of basking in a little schadenfreude. And (laughs) he said, "I, I just want you to see this because it was a building that was uh, designed by the IT firm of New York City skyscrapers right now. Mm-hmm. And it has these corrugated sort of bent uh, steel panels. Mm-hmm. But on each, and it, the building is about two years old. And on each panel, there is a dribble of bird poop. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the architect had designed whatever, you know, for an ideal world, forgetting that 
there are pigeons and they will poop <laughs> on your building. They poop and on I everything. Yeah. Thought how much that is. So even if you know the even if you are an architect and you think yes. you've designed everything and you're writing it to your plan, sometimes you forget real world things and then you have to go back and you know redesign <laughs> a bit because there the bird bird has pooped. Some things you just don't anticipate, you know, and that's kind of part of the beauty of it. <laughs> So I also wanted to mention uh, Sandman's hair and wardrobe. Mm -hmm. I love in this issue, just in general, uh, in this issue and other issues, we've really gotten this dichotomy between how Death dresses when she's at home mm -hmm. and how Dream does when he's in his broody mode. And then they become royalty. They sort of perform themselves. I love that sense of them costuming themselves. Um, and Neil goes into... Uh, great detail about how Sandman's hair should look. And it's a little mm -hmm. longer, a little fuller. It should be like this. And I was thinking that often, uh, you know, romance novels have been criticized for focusing on wardrobe and hair mm -hmm. and those kind of details. But I always think as a writer and as a reader, the details of how we choose to costume ourselves are much more yeah. indicative of character then, you know, eye color or hair color, you know, so for example, if you've got a character who is full figured and zaftig mm -hmm. and juicy, does she choose to conceal it? Does she flaunt it? Does she, you know, what does mm -hmm. she do with that? That tells you more about her than just describing mm -hmm. her body type. Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, I love it. I love anyway, it. Anyway, I just, um, I like yeah. That. Yeah. Oh, I love too that that you know Morpheus can morph. He has this torn shirt, these casual jeans. Suddenly they come in. He's in formal garb and he's got long hair. And I mean, of course, Morpheus can grow his hair long at will. But still, I am envious. It looks amazing, and it was just like in a couple of seconds when I had that bad haircut a couple of years ago, where I told my hairdresser just do whatever, and she cut it really short and gave me the "May I please speak to your manager?" hair. It took me two years to grow that shit out. <laughs> it took me two years, I and there is Morpheus. You, yeah. Well, I can't believe you ever just told. I have always aspired to be the kind of person who uh -huh. would say, do what you want to a hairdresser. But what, what I am is the kind of person who's like, before you touch that scissors to my hair, <laughs> tell me precisely what you're planning on doing. <laughs> I am a risk taker. And the problem with that is that sometimes it does not pan out. So there, again, like the people who are gardeners and look at the architects and think, oh, if I could just be that, know what you are and be that thing, because there's benefits and detractions to everything. <laughs> you also didn't have, may I please speak to your manager hair. Um, I, you know, for, for a couple of years. So, well, I've had some other weird, weird hair <laughs> things. Well, yes. Speaking of aesthetics, shall we discuss our favorite page? Yes, absolutely. I have to say, once again, I am taken by typography. Here we have that page with order and chaos, basically saying the same things, but each in their own ways. Chaos is of uh, uh, speech bubbles are very, very similar to delirium, which I thought was really neat. And I love that aesthetic of the flowing watercolor tones and all of it. It's just so beautiful. And then uh, orders, you know, side of the page is this, it looks almost like computer scripting. It's got all these brackets. It's so freaking cool and so beautiful. And I'm telling you, if I was a person who was, you know, like more comfortable with needles, I would have tattoos of this comic book series all over my body. Every, every issue, there's one page that I'm like, I want that on my skin. It's so beautiful. Well, I, I always, you know, the Getting tattooed wasn't as common in the mm -hmm. early 90s, but I remember thinking like, oh, I couldn't start getting tattoos of this wonderful art because I wouldn't know where to stop. I, I just, yes. there's too many things that I would want. It, it's not like I could just have one little Goldie on a shoulder blade. But, you could um, do that if you wanted to. Oh my God, I love that idea. Let's go get <laughs> tattoos next time we're together. <laughs> that's it. That's what we'll do. Um, so what's but, your favorite page? But I, I, you know, there is another rival for tattoo, and that's page seven. 
Um, there's that first panel, especially with Kane and Lucien and the Raven, and they're sort of mm-hmm. squatting down. It's just so graphically yeah. beautiful. The whole page is gorgeous. Kelly's art um, is always gorgeous, but having P. Craig Russell inking over brings out some interesting qualities. And um, and honestly, when if we ever get to Ramadan, that whole issue is is mm-hmm. just very you you know you might end up becoming like the illustrated woman if you tattooed all of that because it's it's pretty it's pretty great i think about it sometimes honestly like i've never coveted tattoos the way that i've started to since we've started looking at this series because the artwork is just every now and again i will flip a page and i will just be astounded at how beautiful and creative that representation is and i'm also listening to the audible version as well at the same time and in the audible version you get some things and then in the comic book version you get some other things and you kind of like so the order and the chaos in the in the audible version didn't have the impact and the punch that it did on the page because it's just so beautifully represented the audible version you know was i think i've mentioned this before it was using the scripts so some of what you're getting are derived from these artists descriptions oh gosh i love it so much all right so lisa what's your favorite part Oh, I got to go back to the Chorin's and uh, Azazel's uh, demagogue speech. Uh, Demon gog, yeah. (laughs) Demon gog. And, you know, it's just Kelly drawing demons and the social satire aspect of that. I think it it hits me even more strongly now than it did in the 90s because we've had some demon gogs. We've had some demon gogs. It's been really terrible. Um, For me, I have to say, it is this last moment when Morpheus says, we'll talk. Right. He didn't want them there, but they're there. And now he's going to deal with it. And I like it when Dream is about to get down to business. I love that. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. And also, if you have not yet called your local comic book store to ask them to pre-order copies of Guilt, that's G-I-L-T by Elisa Quitney, go do that now. It's coming out on April 6th, and I've read the first issue. You're going to want to get your hands on that as soon as it's available. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, tonight there will be a banquet for you. And tomorrow, We'll talk. To find out how you two can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or think this whole affair is addle-headed, but harness your goats anyway. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, the dead are coming back, little brother. The dead are coming back. We will be back next time with Season of Mist, Chapter 4, Issue 25 of the Sandman series. Until then, it's not nice or pretty, but it's true.